Welcome to the Freedom Hut. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Welcome, friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. We are 22 days out from the election. And in some ways, it really doesn't feel like it, does it? Not nearly the same kind of uh, frenzy of political activity out on the streets. We don't have lawns in New York City, so I can't speak to lawn signs, but everyone's still locked up inside. Things are getting colder. People are worried about COVID. And this week, we're going to spend really on a Supreme Court nomination battle. There's going to be something of a respite from the main effort of the election for a few days. And we've already seen what the opposition to Amy Coney Barrett looks like so far. And the answer is it is unbelievably weak. I mean, it's, it's really quite pathetic. You saw this over the weekend. You had a number of, uh, of prominent news sites that started doing one of two things. They either changed the definition of court packing to include this, Right. Which is filling a Supreme Court seat. No, that's that's court packing. No, that's called filling a seat. That's not packing. Or they started to use this phrase, depoliticize the court, depoliticize Supreme Court nominations. What the heck does that even mean? Well, it's what you do when you don't have a real argument. It's what you do when you're flailing. And clearly the Democrats are at this point. What are they going to say? The incredibly brilliant, universally beloved mother of seven who adopted uh, two black children from Haiti and has already been through a Senate confirmation process to be an appeals court judge and was just pushed through without really any issue other than being asked, does the dogma, the dogma lives loudly within you, which was great for conservatives, Catholics and Republicans that that question was out there. But she's already been confirmed to that. Why would she not be confirmed here? They have no argument, friends. They lost. This is nothing but sour grapes, sore loserism from Democrats. That's all it is. They have no other argument. History is with the Republicans filling this seat. Common sense, basic politics, elections have consequences. The single truest and most useful phrase that Barack Obama ever uttered, I think, at least as president Elections do have consequences, and we are seeing right now what that can mean. So far, it has been pretty pathetic watching Democrats dance around the full-on assault on Amy Coney Barrett's character that we all kind of know is coming. We all believe that they'll do something completely disgraceful or disreputable here. That's their only option. What else are they going to say? ACB... And I I refer to her that way because it's convenient, but also because it really triggers the libs. They hate that. She's no RBG. Correct. She's not. And for the purposes of a constitutionalist on the court, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. Uh, But they're going after everything around this moment so far. They're trying to set the stage and set the narrative. You had Democrat senators spend the day talking about how important the Affordable Care Act is. Senators talking about how Donald Trump has done a terrible job on COVID. These things have nothing to do with ACB. Nothing. This is all about, it's supposed to be about 
deciding whether or not this woman who is eminently qualified to sit on the Supreme Court is in fact going to sit on the Supreme Court. That's it. There's nothing else, which is why all along I've held out that we should have just had the GOP should have called for a vote. Have it have it done and over with. Allow there to be a vote on this. Get it in the books. Get her put in that seat. Dunzo. Move on to the next challenge. That's it. But no, senators can't help but want to take every opportunity to give speeches in front of the American people to a national television audience about how much they love the Constitution or about how much Republicans and Donald Trump hate America or whatever it is that they're going to say. You're hearing a a variation of a political stump speech from most of these senators. Nothing particularly worthwhile or interesting from for many of them. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska gave a uh, civics 101 lesson today. I suppose so- some people seem to like it. Other people felt like it was kind of a waste of everyone's time. Senator Dick Durbin also did much of the same going off on some lengthy speech about uh, the need to protect pre-existing conditions and how the Supreme Court is supposed to be this sacred body. And none of it really adds up to anything other than they are upset that they're not getting their way. Now, I know Sass is a Republican. I didn't mean to throw him in there with Durbin, but I don't trust him. Just going to say I don't trust the guy as a Republican at all. I think he's more about Sass than he is about the GOP. That's for sure. Some of you can disagree with me and that's fine. But on to what they're going to do now. Uh, they've tried so hard. They've, they've, they've tested and then thrown out there all these different narratives. They're still clinging to the weakest of all, I think, which is it was it was RBG's last wish. I do not care. Neither does any other Republican. It's not it doesn't matter. RBG's last wish is is not meaningful for a government proceeding that is representative of what is best for three hundred and thirty million people. Okay, doesn't matter. The same way that the Democrats pretend it does not matter that RBG was on the record and explicitly against packing the court. So who was it that tried to pack the court? Just it's it's worth taking a moment to look back in time for a second. Who was it? It was FDR, wasn't it? Oh, a a big Democrat. The Democrat who ushered in really the overreaching federal government authority, the enormous fissures and breaks in the Constitution. So it was, in fact, the Democrats who once again, part as part of their will to power, tried to push through court packing. They don't get their way. And they want to change things. It's back in 1937. So it stayed at nine back then, but that was also because the composition of the court changed enough and the decisions changed enough to Roosevelt's liking. What was it about? The not the Green New Deal. Oh, but New Deal legislation. So let's understand this as we have Democrats today lecturing us about precedent and history and making it up as they go along. That FDR, perhaps the big government patron saint, I don't know if you want to call him a saint, but you know, the, the big government exemplar of the 20th century couldn't get the Supreme Court then to agree that some of his New Deal actions were in fact constitutional. So what did he do? Change the people making the decisions about the constitutionality. A very Alinskyite approach. Now, that's what he wanted to do. It was not successful, obviously, and the judges stayed at nine. But it was that same impulse. We have power. We want to do things. 
We are collectivists and we believe in state authority. So we're just going to go for it. It doesn't matter. There's a founding document that we're all supposed to adhere to that creates the basis for all of these government actions known as the Constitution. It's not supposed to matter. And then you have this other uh, this media. uh, It's really amazing. This this media effort where it is almost like and I say almost because it is like, actually, I'd be willing to bet that if you were able to track down the emails, you'd find out. That there were members of the media who are getting emails from Democrat listservs and uh, Democrat email lists and things telling them to start referring to the depoliticization of the court and also just say that it's the Republicans who are court packing. This is classic gaslighting. And that's exactly what they're doing now. They do something or try to do something in this case. They haven't done it yet, thankfully. But they try to push through a court packing scheme. And when it doesn't work out for them, when the public or at least the uh, institutions that are watching over this thing say, look, you guys, it's they're allowed to do this. You can just whine and whine. They say, well, yeah, well, you're the ones who are packing the court. What? Yeah, you're the ones who are doing it. You cheated. This is the logic of an eight year old who stole a piece of birthday cake, knows he's about to get caught. And so he blames his six year old sister. She did it. Cast aspersions on the other side, undermine them and hope that your side is able to get what they what they want out of the equation. That's what's happening here. Democrats, in so many ways, do act like a spoiled eight year old. That's really the the central id, the central ethos of the party. I want. Therefore, I demand. I want. Therefore, I should get. Constitution can't be an, an impediment to it. The rule of law can't be an impediment to it. And even the stellar credentials of ACB. And the fact that here we have a truly, obviously decent, kind, ethical, brilliant person who's going to be in a role where she will make good decisions and stay in her lane. She's not going to be a super legislator. She will at some point, I'm sure, disappoint conservatives because she won't do things that are outside of the constitutional scope of a Supreme Court justice. It's the left. It's the liberals who want something very different. They want a super legislature that is not accountable to the people and that will give them at the key moments in the court's decision making process will give them the laws and the political victories that they want. This is for all of us to see. It's quite obvious. It's quite apparent. And for all the uh, smarmy lib lawyers out there with their uh, much heralded credentials because they went to some institution that is now just churning out erudite leftists as fast as possible who have who have bad judgment, but unfortunately have strong enough legal credentials that they now largely control the legal profession. I mean, the left has overtaken not just undergrad programs, but law schools. Speak to somebody who's gone to law school in the last 10 or 15 years. They're every bit is down with BLM and social justice and, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all this stuff. You name it. Big corporate law firms. It'd be shocking if Americans actually really understood how far this leftist ideological rot has extended throughout the legal profession. But ACB is going to withstand all of that. And here's my prediction for the week. And this is one of these predictions where I hope I'm wrong. You will recall that Brett Kavanaugh was also sailing through stellar credentials, perfectly situated, gold, gold plated resume for a Supreme Court justice. Nothing about the guy didn't add up to, yeah, he should be voted through. And that's the way the beginning of those hearings went. 
till all of a sudden we knew that there was this allegation that surfaced. And then this woman showed up and it was all just run through the Democrat apparatus. You had very powerful figures prepping and assisting and pushing for Blasey Ford. And then, of course, two other women came forward, each one less credible than the next with their allegations. And there were a whole bunch of allegations of people that made their way to the Senate that didn't actually make their way onto the Senate floor because they were so absurd that even the shameless and disgraceful Kamala Harris and the rest of the Senate Democrats on the judiciary weren't willing to use because there were allegations from women who it was demonstrable had never even been in the same state as Kavanaugh. Never mind had actually been the victim of some attack by his hand. Brett Kavanaugh was a manifestly innocent person and a good man and perfectly suited to be a Supreme Court justice. Amy Coney Barrett is a good woman and also perfectly suited for the role. We're going to go through a few days here where it'll seem like everything is just fine. And then at the very last moment, as we're just a few weeks away from an election, I think Democrats will spring the trap. I don't know what it is. It may be a process thing. It may be blocking access to Capitol Hill. It may be someone coming forward who claims that they heard Amy Coney Barrett saying anti-LGBT slurs 30 years ago with no proof and no nothing, but something along those lines. But they're going to try. And it's going to be ugly. That's my prediction. So just get ready for it. We're going to, I think we're going to go through a few days of pretty smooth sailing, Democrats flailing, looking weak, looking absurd. But I know this. I know this left-wing mentality. I know what this Democrat party's become. And they're going to try something ugly and disgusting in the next 48 hours or so. Thanks for listening to the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to visit BuckSexton.com. Well, I can, I, I can tell you that uh, we're getting this question. It's a common question being asked because American people have watched the Republicans pack in the court over the last three and a half years, and they brag about it. They've taken every vacancy and filled it. Did you know that they've sent us, and we have approved only with their votes, I might add, uh, 10 people who have been, been judged unanimously unqualified by the American Bar Association? Do you know how many judicial nominees came from Obama who were judged unanimously unqualified? None. So we are dealing with people on the court, packed into the court, with little or no qualification, uh, who are going to be there for a long time. So it's understandable. The Republicans raised the issue of court picking. Changing the definition. That's Dick Durbin on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Changing the definition of court packing in real time. That is not what court packing is. You can say, I don't like their nominations. You can say a lot of things. But you can't say that that's court packing, which is what they're doing. They're claiming right now that the words that we are using to talk about this nomination process don't actually have a specific meaning. That they can change the meaning of those words in real time. What is that reminiscent of? There's a there's a great irony in all this, isn't there? That at a time when we're talking about who should sit on the Supreme Court, somebody who believes the Constitution is a document that has meaning and that the words have implications that are not subject to whims and interpretations not rooted in the actual text. Right. You have textualists and you have living Constitution people. Right. It's just whatever I want it to be whenever I want it to be that. Well, look at what the Democrats are doing right now with court packing. Court packing isn't that thing that we've all agreed it is for as long as we've been using the term. It's some other thing. 
It's some other concept. Let me now, let me now shift into that conversation. It's, uh, it's stunning. It's disgusting. It's unfair. But that's where we are. That's where we are. Depoliticizing is the other term we're using. The Associated Press has started to talk about, and this was the, uh, the quote from the weekend. Bullock said that if Coney Barrett was confirmed, he would be open to measures to depoliticize the court, including adding judges to the bench, a practice critics have dubbed packing. Oh, so now we're going to see this is why I always tell you, watch the words the Democrats use from illegal alien to illegal immigrant to undocumented immigrant to undocumented period. Just give them documents. Then they're just American like everybody else. Right. Same thing. Doesn't matter. Look at that. There are so many instances of this. Oh, pro-choice. Women's health. uh, Women's health rights. Say abortion, guys. You're talking about abortion. No one has any problem with any other women's, quote, health rights. But they can't use the actual language that we all agree means something because then they'll lose the debate. So what do they do? They change the terms of the debate. When they're not deplatforming, as you can see, when they're not shutting you down, silencing you, what do they do? Change the way that you can use the platform. Change the words that are acceptable. Change the uh, the definition, at least in the public mind, so that now they can say whatever they want about a thing. Depoliticizing. Oh, okay. Sure. Isn't that so? Isn't that so quaint? We all know what they're trying to do here. We all understand what's happening. But you're seeing the fundamental dishonesty of the Democrat Party on full display for all right now, whether it's on changing the terms of our discussion over the Supreme Court vacancy that will hopefully soon be filled by Amy Coney Barrett or saying that uh, Joe Biden, you know, that, that there is no right for the people to know. There is no reason for the people to know if Biden would even engage in court packing. Fundamental dishonesty from all quarters. That's your Democrat Party in 2020. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. It is Columbus Day. It is not Indigenous Peoples Day. It is Columbus Day. Named for Christopher Columbus, the Italian explorer who on behalf of the Spanish crown discovered the new world change global history and is somebody who for this accomplishment we celebrate him right we don't celebrate him because he was a nice guy because he was just a big old cuddle bear we celebrate christopher columbus because he's somebody who changed the course of history and brought about a change in the historical trajectory that resulted in a system the american system that then spread around the world That has resulted in more people living longer, healthier, better lives, more people pulled out of poverty in the 20th century into the 21st century alone than at any other time in human history and probably all of the rest of human history added together. I know that sounds mind boggling, but it's true. Here's a proclamation on Columbus Day from the White House. More than 500 years ago, Christopher Columbus's intrepid voyage to the New World ushered in a new era of exploration and discovery. His travels led to European contact with the Americas and a century later, the first settlements on the shores of the modern day United States. Today, we celebrate Columbus Day to commemorate the great Italian who opened a new chapter in world history and to appreciate his enduring significance to the Western Hemisphere. 
when Christopher Columbus and his crew sailed across the Atlantic Ocean on the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria, it marked the beginning of a new era in human history. For Italian-Americans, Christopher Columbus represents one of the first of many immeasurable contributions of Italy to American history. As a native of Genoa, Columbus inspired early immigrants to carry forth their rich Italian heritage to the New World. Today, the United States benefits from the warmth and generosity of nearly 17 million Italian-Americans whose love of family and country strengthen the fabric of our nation. For our beautiful Italian-American communities and Americans of every background, Columbus remains a legendary figure. Sadly, in recent years, radical activists have sought to undermine Christopher Columbus's legacy. These extremists seek to replace discussion of his vast contributions with talk of failings, with discoveries of atrocities, and his achievements with transgressions. Rather learn from our history, rather than learn from our history, this radical ideology and its adherents seek to revise it, deprive it of any splendor, and mark it as inherently sinister. They seek to squash any dissent from their orthodoxy. We must not give in to these tactics or consent to such a bleak view of our history. We must teach, we must teach future generations about our storied heritage, starting with the protection of monuments to our intrepid heroes like Columbus. This June, I signed an executive order to ensure that any person or group destroying or vandalizing a federal monument, memorial, or statue is prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I've also taken steps to ensure that we preserve our nation's history and promote patriotic education. On this Columbus Day, we embrace the same optimism that led Christopher Columbus to discover the new world. We inherit that optimism along with the legacy of American heroes who blazed the trails, settled the continent, tamed the wilderness, and built the single greatest nation the world has ever seen. In commemoration of Christopher Columbus's historic voyage, the Congress, by joint resolution of April 30th, 1934, requested the president proclaim the second Monday of October each year as Columbus Day. Now, therefore, I, Donald Trump, president of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim October 12th, 2020 as Columbus Day. I call upon the people of the United States to observe this day with appropriate ceremonies and activities. I direct that the flag of the United States be displayed on all public buildings on the appointed day in honor of our diverse history and all who have contributed to shaping this nation. In witness hereof, I have hereunto set my hand this ninth day of October in the year of our Lord, 2020, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 245th. Donald Trump. That's just one thing that if Joe Biden becomes your president, you can kiss all that kind of stuff goodbye. Joe, Joe Biden will be showing up talking about Indigenous People's Day. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? For BLM, Democrats wore kente cloth scarves. Remember that? I mean, it was Nancy Pelosi, kente cloth scarf, right? What such a shameless pandering, such demagoguery. And among many others, Chuck Schumer. Yeah, because they're really all about they're really all about uh, you know African history. I mean, but Joe Biden, you know, might show up uh, on Indigenous Peoples Day. What? I mean, I don't know. Was he going to wear a, wear a, a a feathered headdress or something? Or is that is that no, that's not allowed. Kente cloth is allowed, but Native American garb or anything like that, not allowed. Seems to, I, I, who knows where the rules are, different for the left than on the right. That's for sure. Um, but all of this, this talk of American optimism and the brilliance of Columbus and what he did, that will all be entirely forgotten. And there's another part of this history that's forgotten as well, and that's Columbus as a, as a, as a point of pride. And one would think 
if they really looked back and I think if more people knew this history, particularly if Democrats, by the way, don't know history, they know little snippets of history that are useful for the socialist left narrative of control today, but they don't actually know history. Uh, as, as just a broad thing, they generally have no idea what the heck they're talking about. And I mean the ones that are making these arguments. I mean, I mean the 1619 Project, which now people are calling for it to be uh, stripped of its Pulitzer, which will never happen, even though it's, it's changed its mission statement. That's how, that's how fraudulent that whole thing was. They've said it was about establishing a new day for the American founding, and now they're saying, no, it's not about that. We've, we've scrubbed that. Not, not true. Oh, Interesting. But people forget the struggles. You know, there have been waves of immigration into this country in the past and the struggles that different immigrant groups had, uh, notably Italian-Americans who did face uh, real discrimination. And, and I know people hear this now and they think, come on, Italian, we got, you know, Cuomo is the governor of New York and, you know, Rudy Giuliani was the America's most famous mayor. And you think of all these Italian-Americans who... Have, have big political names and uh, have, have become so well known. But if you go back into history a little bit, uh, there were some very ugly incidents of bigotry against Italian immigrants in this country. And Columbus, Columbus Day was was a thing that they derived tremendous pride in because the Italian Americans were generally doing menial jobs when they got here, didn't speak the language, were and especially for those who are more Sicilian and from you know, further south and, and more central in, in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, uh, they were known to be usually a little bit darker. And so there was there was a racial component that would come out to the the anti-Italian uh, rhetoric of the time. And I know now it's, it's like talking about anti-Irish bigotry. Irish were banned from or barred from jobs. Irish need not apply. Irish weren't allowed to work. Irish were thought of as criminals. Irish were thought of as. As uh, as thugs, thieves, untrustworthy. Now, then the Irish became, you know, they, they went from being the, quote, thieves to then becoming the cops in pretty much every major American city and then running, you know, the political machinery. And now, you know, they're all over the place. Right. And I'm basically half Irish by by heritage, uh, roughly, roughly 50 percent Irish. And of that of that stock, my uh, ancestors came over on one side during the potato famine in 1840 and settled in in Brooklyn, New York, just got right off the dock. And this is where they were. And that's why I've got I've got very long roots here in New York City. But the Italians, uh, there's one incident that, that comes to mind. I mean, there were 11 Italian-Americans who were lynched. Also, another thing, lynching was a a uh, a terrible crime that was done mostly but not exclusively against african-americans from around 18 call it 1870 getting into about reconstruction era into the 1920s or so you had a few thousand people in the united states who were lynched and about two out of three were african-american but there was about a, th a third of the lynchings that occurred were not the horrible crimes perpetrated against african-americans there were there were terrible crimes against against other people including uh, um, whites who were trying to push for black rights in the South. There were a whole number of them who were lynched and immigrants, different immigrants were lynched in 1891. I don't even know how many of you would, would know this, this story, New Orleans, one of my favorite cities in America. I love New Orleans. Uh, it's such a fun place and it's such, such a cool mix of different cultures, but 
Um, it wasn't always a, a happy place with regard to how those cultures interacted with each other. That's and that's putting it mildly. I mean, depending on the time in history, you can obviously point to a whole lot of problems there. But the uh, there were there was a an assassination effectively of I believe it was the uh, police chief. It might have been the mayor of New Orleans. I have to go check. I think it was the police chief. And uh, he was killed. And they believed that it was the Italian-American population. This was 1891 in New Orleans. They thought it was the Italian-American population. There already was this sense of mafia ties and criminal activity with the Italians. And they, and they had already had a number of people tried and acquitted. And they were still being held in the jail for some reason. And others were still awaiting trial. And a mob formed, broke in, and murdered, muti- murdered hanged, and mutilated. So they shot them, and then some of them they hang, and, and they ripped apart the bodies. They took body parts as trophies 11 italian americans killed in 1891 in new orleans um for i mean maybe one person and i would be willing to bet a whole lot of money it wasn't one of the 11 for what one person did to the uh the to an official of the city of new orleans 11 lynchings all at once so there was a dark there was a dark uh, history here of discrimination against uh, against immigrant groups, including Italian-Americans. And Christopher Columbus is part of the the pride. And that's why they'll talk about the, the pride the Italian-American community feels with. Hey, you know, we were early contributors to this American project. Right. It was it was an Italian who even discovered this place. Right? It's an Italian Amerigo Vespucci for whom this country is named. And so that's all part of, you know, it's interesting. The left sees this need for other groups to have heroes elevated. And, and they're right in many cases about the heroes that they're choosing. Right. You know, they're, they're right to want to elevate, um, you know, people from the Latino and the African-American community who have contributed to this country throughout its history in ways. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm all for that. Right. I mean, I, I think that you could you could argue uh, that you know Frederick Douglass is one of the true founding fathers in many ways in this country, but with Italian Americans, it's considered a, it, it's all a a sacrifice to wokeness now, and that's why not far from where I'm doing the show is the large statue of Christopher Columbus in Columbus Circle, named for him. Where I used to avoid the area because that's where CNN's headquarters were, and I didn't want to have to bump into bump into Zucker and challenge him to a breakdancing battle. That would have been good Instagram content. But uh, now it's uh, Christopher Columbus statue there has to be guarded by the police because they know they're going to it's going to be defaced. It's going to be defaced because the left has decided that the history of this country is really a history of exploitation, rape, genocide, imperialism, murder, theft and exploitation. And what's interesting is that. I mean, depending upon how they're going to set up their parameters for how they would judge any country. Uh, you could say that about any great civilization. There, there's always violence. There's always wars. There's always, you know, internecine struggle. There's always all of these things. But is that the majority? Is that what most of the history really was? Or did it create a society where people overwhelmingly lived in peace, prosperity, and some degree of happiness? America is the greatest nation state that has ever been the greatest force for good in the world. And it's only possible because of people who are willing to take risks and willing to be leaders. Christopher Columbus certainly played a large role in all of that. And Columbus is somebody who I think uh, we are right to honor for the accomplishment. 
And that is it for the discovery. No one is saying that everything he did was great or that he was a perfect or wonderful man. We're just saying this guy made it. It's like he won a big race and we are giving him the trophy for the race. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the best of Buck Daily podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com and remember to subscribe to the podcast. But these are nonetheless the consequences of her stated views on the law prevail in the Supreme Court. And if Republicans are successful in filling this vacancy prior to November 10th, well, then we know these views will almost certainly prevail. So that's what's at stake here. That's what weighs heavily on me as we begin these hearings. It also weighs heavily on the minds of the Vermonters I represent. I've heard from them often and loudly since Justice Ginsburg's passing. They're scared, Judge Barrett. They're scared that your confirmation would rip from them the very health care protections the millions of Americans have fought to maintain and which Congress has repeatedly rejected eliminating. They're scared that the clock will be turned back to a time when women had no right to control their own bodies and when it was acceptable to discriminate against women in the workplace. Some of it tell Patrick Leahy here that he's... Uh, yeah, maybe it's time to do some oil painting in the backyard with the grandkids. Do these guys ever stop? You know how we have a, a, an age requirement for, for certain offices, right? You have to be a certain age to be president. You have to a certain age to be in the United States uh, Senate and certain age for the House. You know how we have that? I think we also are at a point now where we need to consider an upper limit for elected office because people's egos are overtaking their ability to think fairly and rationally about whether they are, in fact, the most energetic, the most mentally acute and best representative for the people in their place, because they just look, people want to be important. You see this in the media all the time. You see people get addicted to being important and having other people listen to them and having power. And just being a normal person is terrifying to folks who have been in that role, been a senator for 40 years. Look at Joe Biden. Look at uh, look at Leahy and look at Nancy Pelosi and. You know, I'm telling you, honestly, I mean, I think Trump is age wise at the upper limit of what somebody should be to be the president. And Trump is also somebody who has a tremendous amount of of energy and vitality for his age and is in very good health. In fact, since we're speaking about the president's health, uh, he said that. uh, Here we are, folks, it's Monday. I said we got to wait till Monday to know for sure. The media is not going to focus on this. I'm just taking take a little break from the, the judge stuff for a second here. Trump's saying he's great. Good to go. Back in action. 74-year-old, or maybe three, but 70-plus-year-old Donald Trump with some concern over some uh, additional aggravating factors got COVID, beat it in three, four days. He's telling you himself. He said he's fine. Doesn't even have it anymore. Play 14. The note that you have uh, revealed from your doctor, which says you are no longer considered a transmission risk. Does this suggest you no longer have COVID, sir? Yes. And uh, not only that, it seems like I'm immune. So I can go uh, way out of a basement, which I would have done anyway, and which I did because you have to run a country. You have to get out of the basement. And uh, it looks like I'm immune for, I don't know, maybe a long time or maybe a short time. It could be a lifetime. Nobody really knows, but I'm immune. So 
so the uh, president is in very good shape. Here we are, folks. A moment of celebration that the media will just ignore. The president's fine. It wasn't just a stunt. It wasn't just, oh, he wanted that shot outside the White House after he'd been released from Walter Reed, where he took off his mask, and they were all saying, he's Mussolini, because <laughs> they're psychos, because they're crazy. No, the president beat this thing. And now, really, you see the two narratives. You can be Joe Biden. You can be, oh, I got to wear the mask all the time, and I got to be, you know, hey, man, I'm a mask maniac. And you can avoid people and stay in your basement. And look, I have never said that anyone shouldn't, you know, that's freedom. You want to stay in your basement? You want to not live your life? Fine. But Trump now shows us that, no, you can, you should be able to make the decision to live your life knowing that there is some risk that you could get COVID-19. And yes, knowing that that means you could, in fact, transmit the disease to other people as well. Not intentionally, but this is the world we live in. Viruses are in the air. Viruses are all over us, actually, all the time. People don't ever talk about that, but it's true. It's really just a question of your immune system. There's a constant ongoing battle between your immune system and microbes, but we don't think about that very much. But the president beat it. And there's a study out of Harvard just today that says that looks like at least four months, they think, according to this study out of Harvard, uh, Harvard Medical School, will give you protection. So that means Trump is fine. Trump can go out there and he can shake hands and high five and kiss babies and all. He, he's good. Based on what we know about epidemiology, based upon what we know of the virus, no reason to believe, no reason to believe otherwise. Certainly up until the election and probably deep into 2021. So who, who made the better decision, really? Remember, they, they were all jumping on the president and saying, look at how reckless he is. He got it. Yeah. And they were saying he deserved it. And they were saying they hope he had a bad, bad outcome. And the president responded with, look, I'm the president. I got to be out there. I got to do things. I've got to represent my people. And that means that there's going to be some risk. There is risk to the president every time he goes to any event. That's why he's got the Secret Service with him, right? This is not a risk-free job. As a number of U.S. presidents from our past, unfortunately, can't attest to, but if you look at the history books, and as recently as Ronald Reagan, it was very apparent to presidents that there are risks with that job. It is not risk-free. There are risks from bad people. There are risks from bad diseases. That's just the reality. And... Now we have a president who has recovered from the virus and is fine and is a symbol to so many other folks. If 74-year-old Donald Trump... Now, look, I understand he got very good care, but they use drugs on him that they, that they use on other people as well. But Donald Trump, yes, he got in there early because he was being tested frequently. But, you know, first of all, 40% of people, they tell us, are asymptomatic entirely. So even if you get this, the chances are that... Or there's a good chance, I should say, that you will have no symptoms. And the chances are very high that you'll have very minimal symptoms. And oh, who's even paying attention to the fact that the World Health Organization, one of its top officials over the weekend. Now, look, I know we were bashing the WHO because it was way too China friendly with this uh, Wuhan coronavirus stuff in the beginning. Fine. But they do look at this issue and we were told that we should listen to them and that it was only just some kind of a Trump conspiracy to even question the WHO. WHO officials come out and said, look, we, we should we should not have lockdowns as the go-to policy. Just said it. Just like, look, we, we should not do this. This does not make sense. It's too damaging. It's too costly to society. Stop using lockdowns as the primary, uh, the primary move here. But, you know, look, there's a reason, friends, 
that the long lockdowns we're seeing were never considered the wise response to a pandemic in all the policy and academic literature written on this. And there was a lot of it before 2020, actually until April of this year. The media and our expert class have failed us. They're never going to admit their catastrophic errors. But that's what has happened here. That's the truth of our fight against COVID-19. Lockdowns did not work and exacted a terrible toll on society, one that we can't even really begin to calculate. A tremendous amount of duress and stress put on people all across the country. And if you look at the country-by-country breakdown, you know what one of the look one of the single biggest differentiators here between countries with really bad outcomes and countries that were pretty OK with this has to do with uh, with the percentage of the population that had serious health problems before covid-19. That, that's just the facts. This is just data and numbers. You know, you look at South Korea, you look at Japan, they have far less diabetes and far less obesity than we do. And so when you're and also when you add that to the way that we calculate COVID deaths, where there, there are now clear examples, right? Bright red line kind of examples of someone who dies from an accident or self-harm, but they test and the person has COVID-19. They say it's a COVID death. I mean, they've and there are incentives in the system for doctors because you get federal money for, for the hospital. There are there are incentives for coding it as a COVID death. And no one's going to challenge you or be upset at you for saying it's a COVID death. In the in the sort of consensus media Democrat world, they're going to say, see, this is a person who's taking the disease seriously. That's what they'll say. It's uh, pretty stunning. So we continue to see this pretty stunning indeed. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. And so we are now... Beginning the fastest economic recovery in history, we created a record 11.4 million jobs just in the last four months. That's the fastest ever. The U.S. has seen the smallest economic contraction of any major nation anywhere in the world. So we've seen the smallest going down. If you look at it, that's an incredible statement. Our opponents will crush the comeback with unscientific lockdowns. They want to lock everything down. Here we go again. They want to lock it down. We're not going to let it happen. We're not going to let it happen. So important you get out and vote. You got to get out and vote. Not going to be a second lockdown. Music to my ears, at least at the federal level, especially as I have to sit here and worry about what they're going to do in New York, where I believe we are going to go into an extended lockdown again, in New York City at least, where I'm currently doing the show. I remember when I spoke to the president in May, and I was in the Oval Office with him, spent 45 minutes or so, close to an hour, I think, uh, sitting there just talking about everything, just the two of us, nobody else in the room. And uh, the one thing that I really wanted to hammer home, and uh, he completely agreed with me, to his credit, he completely agreed with me on this. I just said, sir, we can't do a second lockdown. This is madness. And he said, Buck, there's not going to be a second lockdown we're going to put out the fires as they come up, but there's not going to be a second lockdown. It was, you know, that was a one-time thing to get us prepared because we were caught off guard by this. You know, we didn't have the, you know, the PPE and the ventilators and all these things that everyone said that they were going to need so badly. So, so far, the president has, has, has kept his promise on that one. And I asked him, I said, promise me you're not going to do that, sir. And he said, we're not going to do that. So that's a promise so far that has been kept. And I'm, I'm happy that the president understands why that would be such a bad idea 
But I'm also deeply concerned because with Democrats, this is this is now an article of faith. They're going to want to have a lockdown and then have Biden bring us out of it in, in his own good time. Federal mask mandate. He's saying this. And I keep asking people, if we're going to have a federal mask mandate, why not have a federal mask and goggles mandate? I mean, why not really go all in? Right. Why not? We could make enough goggles for everybody. Shouldn't we all have to wear goggles and a mask? And then shouldn't we just do a full hooded ventilator system so that you really are actually getting protect? That works, but that would protect you from the virus. But why? Too expensive? Too much? I thought this was about saving lives. Notice how the way that they the way that they argue with people like me who will say masks probably have some effect. I don't know how big it is. I don't I don't deny that it is is helpful in some circumstances in some ways, but it's minimal. It's insufficient. It's not enough to stop this thing. Obviously, it wasn't enough to stop the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 when they had mask policies in cities, by the way, and people were dying in numbers where trust me, nobody was like saying, "Hey, you know, I'm just going to go out there. I shouldn't say nobody. There's always people. But, you know, people were wearing masks, folks. And I'm sure the people that stopped wearing them in 1918 were the ones who said um, this isn't saving us. So what are we even doing? Uh, but anyway, I, I just note that the Biden campaign has made this a, a huge, a huge virtue signal, which we all know, which is why I, ha- I don't think I've seen a photo of Joe Biden out without a mask on. I don't even know in how many months other than at the debate, obviously. Who knows if there's even going to be a, a second debate. Uh, but I'll tell you this. I, I rode on an, on an Amtrak train yesterday. And I just have to kind of laugh. Here's what here's the, a little window into the future of, of what you get if you allow Democrat statist types to determine how we're going to respond to this pandemic for the future. This is what your life is going to be like, not just for... All of next year, maybe deep into 2022, you're going to have policies like I sat, I sat there on Amtrak dealing with this, where you have no one's allowed to sit next to you. Now, I think maybe if you're of the same, same household, but who even knows with that? You'll see these experts that will write, hey, when you're having, you know, special fun, fun time with the, your significant other. Well, you got to make sure you wear that surgical mask to protect the protect them from COVID. That's a real thing. I, I know you're some of you are giggling. That's a real thing. Got to wear the mask for special fun, fun time. OK, that's the craziest thing. I think I mean, how much and then take the mask off while you sleep next to each other in the same room, in the same bed for the rest of the night. Right. But, you know, husband and wife doesn't matter. Got to protect each other. It's absurd. It's stupid. We all know it's stupid. But I just point out all the stupid policies and people get mad at me. And I say, well, are we just supposed to all do dumb things because some people are scared? And so they they get to make all the decisions for all the rest of us. You know, you could go swimming in the ocean and get eaten by a shark tomorrow. It, It can happen. In fact, I think the most common places in the country for sure. I think the most common place in the world for shark attack might even be on the coast of Florida. I think it's it's right up there. It's coast of Florida, east coast of Australia, and off uh, South Africa. That's where you have the most, certainly the most uh, shark attacks in total. I think the most fatal shark attacks, too. Now, why am I talking about shark attacks? Because if I ran around telling everybody who was going into the ocean, what are you doing? You could be eaten by a shark. Technically true, but I think people should be allowed to swim. Now, I understand there are far more people getting COVID shark attacks, but I'm just saying that when it comes to -to day-to-day risk mitigation in our own lives, people should be allowed to make their own decisions. 
And for people who say things like, oh, but like, what about seatbelt laws, Buck? I'd say, yeah, plenty of people don't wear their seatbelts. I got news for you. Plenty of people still don't do it. Still don't do it. And also the, the fine for not wearing a seatbelt isn't $1,500 or, or prison time. It's like a $50. Who cares? And, you know, that's also just affecting you. That's not affecting anybody else. And it's, it's such a minor inconvenience that even I think some libertarians say, all right, I mean, you know, whatever. Wearing a mask is not a minor inconvenience. It's really annoying. It's oppressive. It's psychologically deleterious. I really, I believe that. I'm going to go to the gym today. I'm going to be doing deadlifts with a freaking mask on like an idiot. Alone, because no one else will even go to the gym because they're so scared where I am. Alone in, you know, a, a room that's probably 1,500 square feet with the windows open. But got to wear that mask while I'm deadlifting. It's, it's insane, right? But so anyway, back to the Amtrak. So I'm on the Amtrak. Where, you know, blue collar Joe takes it. You know how long the Amtrak Acela is from Delaware to uh, to D.C. to Capitol Hill? It's actually like the greatest commute imaginable in a lot of ways. Uh, forty five minutes. I don't know. Maybe it's forty five minutes to Baltimore. But anyway, it's like an hour. It's like an hour. It's quick. And that's what Joe Biden was doing, you know, once or twice a week or something. Too. It wasn't even like that often. It's crazy. But I'm on the Acela. They won't let somebody sit next to you, but you have people mandated because it's a signed seating now sit in front of you and behind you and i was sitting across from somebody and i kid you not she had a, she had a little mask on and she pulled the, the classic biden maneuver remember when biden pulled down his mask to cough into his hand and then pulled his mask back back up again she had a coughing fit <laughs> you know coughing right you know right next to me pulled her mask off for the coughing fit so just like <laughs> you know uh, based on what we're all told, just like virus, virus everywhere, right? All kinds of bleh, whatever she's got, just coughing all over the place. And then pulled her mask back up. And I'm sitting here like, oh, gee, th- thanks. <laughs> so so I get the coughing, which is actually expelling the virus, you know, 15 feet or whatever it is. But I but the the mask wearing, you know, when you're breathing, <laughs> it's so dumb, folks. And then I sit around people who are you know eating a bagel with cream cheese no mask on for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. But for the last 20 minutes of the trip, they put that mask back on because that's going to protect us. It's idiocy. You know, it's idiocy. It makes no sense. Don't listen to the lockdown libs who judge you and mask shame you. 